Welcome to Global River Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org forward slash resources. I trust you've got a copy of the outline this morning. I, you know, when, when you're asking the Lord, you know, you're going to share the word, um, I just get before him. I said, Lord, what is it that your people need to hear? What is it that I need to hear? And then make me your mouthpiece. This one just, I could not get off. This hit me earlier in the week um, about the fruit and this particular fig tree in the verse. And um, I just, uh, it's kind of, I think it's prophetic. <clears throat> I titled the message this morning, When Should the Fruit Be Ripe? When Should the Fruit Be Ripe? Now, I don't know about you, Pat called me last night. She goes, oh, my Lord, we have bananas coming out. We've got, we, we have so much fruit the, in the refrigerators and in the cafe. We need, to, we need to call and get people. We can't give it all away. So the good shepherd came this morning, got a good portion of it. And, and so I just thought it was prophetic. <laughs> the, all the bananas were ripe. They got to go. They won't make it till Thursday. House of Mercy, we give away. I pray all the blessing on all the volunteers that come and We've been just overflowing with uh, food pantry stuffs that have come in. Uh, Pastor Jameson came this week on Thursday. He gave a word that was just, whoo, uh, it was fire. It was just, God's just doing a, an amazing. So when the, when the fruit's ripe, you got to give it away. It's no good when it's, when it's not ripe or it's too ripe, right? And so prophetically, I want to pull on this scripture because I think there's a revelation of it, at least it has been for me. Why don't you turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. Mark 11, and we're going to begin in verse 12. Um, we've been doing the, the study of John on Wednesday nights, and it's just been really, really a powerful study for me. I believe it's important. I think that we sometimes, who are the Gospel writers? What was, was going on? What was their context and I don't know if you've thought about this or studied this past, but who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Well, it was Mark, <laughs> but his name was John Mark. And uh, if you know the history of John Mark, he was not one of the original apostles. In fact, if you look at all four of the Gospels, two of them were written by eyewitness accounts of people who were there. We've been studying the Gospel of John, and that's such a powerful book written 60 years after the death of Christ, only surviving apostle, watching the church now emerge, and all of the others have been martyred. He's an eyewitness. He writes in 1 John. We've been studying this in men's group. Men come tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. We've been studying in 1 John. You might want to read that. John says, I'm an eyewitness. I saw him. I handled him. I touched him. I was there. That you would know that he is the Christ. Well, John was an eyewitness. Matthew was an eyewitness, the tax collector, an educated man, knew Greek, knew Hebrew, but the tax collector, he was the other one that wrote the book of Matthew. But Mark, in fact, it was John Mark. What do you know about John Mark? Somebody tell me. He, they got in such a, a hoo-ha between Barnabas. Remember in the book of Acts, you've got Paul and Barnabas are raised up. It says, separate us for us, Paul and Barnabas, for the work we have unto them. Barnabas, the man of encouragement, was a Levite. He was a Jew from Cyprus. 
and they join up forces. Well, it turns out, commentaries say that John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. And they get into this thing. On the first missionary journey, John Mark bails. Too hard on that mission trip. He goes back home, and Paul is like, wait a minute. And they get into a, a, a tizzy. Barnabas, the encourager, and Paul get into a disagreement over his cousin. And because Barnabas says, I want to have John Mark join. He goes, no, he's not joining us. And they said it was such a strong disagreement, the two evangelists split. Isn't that how God does it? Two evangelists. They ain't got two of them working. <laughs> so one take, Paul takes Silas, and Barnabas takes John Mark. But we know later they reconciled, and we'll see that. They made reconciliation. Well, it turns out John Mark becomes the spiritual son of Peter. In that while, you'll see that in 1 Peter. I'll quote it later. But he becomes the spiritual son. Who was Paul's spiritual son? Timothy, right? So when you look at it, the two writers, the two non-witnessing writers, Mark and Luke, Dr. Luke, Luke became one of the sons also of Paul. And then you have John Mark, who writes the Gospel of Mark, who was the spiritual son of Peter. This is another interesting fact about the book of Mark. I know this is it's just encouraging to me. Do you know that all the other three Gospels, besides the Gospel of Mark, every verse that's written in the Gospel of Mark is quoted except 31 of the, of the writings, Scripture verses in the Gospel of Mark. It's written around 55 to 65 A.D., just before Peter is martyred. So you can almost get the picture that Peter is telling his spiritual son just like Luke was getting his information from Paul, and he writes, because we know that Peter was martyred, crucified by Nero upside down in 67 AD. So there's the scripture background. Now, you might say, well, what about John Mark? What happened to him? We know that he may have been present many times in the book of Acts early, but it turns out he became the bishop or the pastor of Alexandria, Egypt. He was killed the day after Easter in the year, let's see if I got that, if I wrote that down. Maybe I didn't write it down. He was actually, when it became part of Nero's plan to destroy Christians, they put a rope around the pastor's neck and dragged him through the street until he was dead. That's how John Mark became martyred in Alexandria, Egypt. So we see the history of these guys. They laid it all down. They had, some of them were eyewitnesses. Some of them became the spiritual sons that wrote of this word. So when we look at the Gospel of Mark, let's now enter this. Get the picture of the sage, Peter, telling his spiritual son, I was there when Jesus said this. We pick up in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 12. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. There's the natural side of the man, right? The God-man. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem... Jesus entered the temple, 
that began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables for the money changers, the chairs for selling doves. He stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare that my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed that it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day, and he exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown down into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe, you'll receive it, and it will be yours. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone that you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. King James adds another verse here. Some of the other God says, verse 26, But if you do not forgive... Neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Lots to unpack there. Let's, let's go and let's kind of pull back this a little bit. So why did Jesus pick on the tree? Didn't he create all things? He's the creator of all things. He holds it all together. He creates the seasons. Then Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says there, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a season for all things under heaven, all made beautiful in its time. Well then, why in the world is the master operating outside the natural season that he created for the fig tree that just wasn't time for him to be ripe? So why would you expect, master, for the fig tree that you created, not outside of a season, to expect to give it fruit? And then in the fact of all that, you curse it on top of it? Great question, Pastor Tom, asked the Holy Spirit. Let me kind of shed what I think is some light. Did Jesus use the natural things to portray spiritual truth? Right, we know that, right? He, he told the fishermen, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Now that, that'll preach. That's an evangelistic thing for fishermen. How about for the farmers? There are four soils. If the seed falls in good soil, multiply and produce a hundred, it falls on bad. So he used the natural order of things, the parables, to portray these truths. The pearl of great price is defined for the kingdom. So here we are. It says, there is a natural order to things, as Ecclesiastes tells us. But there is a spiritual order to things. The spiritual order of things. I want to ask you a question. Paul, we won't unpack a lot of this, but Paul asks this question in Corinthians and in Thessalonians. Are you a natural man or woman? 
Are you a carnal man or woman? Or are you a spiritual man or woman? Natural man, let's unpack the Greek. In fact, why don't you turn with me? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 on this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul unpacks this. We'll pick up in verse 9. I love that scripture. We love this one. But let's, let's read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll read 9 through 16. I want to pick up also in chapter 3 a little bit. Very spiritual revelation here. Beginning in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 2, it says, This is what the Scriptures mean when they say that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by His Spirit. For His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets No one can know a person's thought except the person's own spirit. No one can know God's own thoughts except by God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. Matter of fact, probably most of you are here today because you say, man, I don't know all the things he's got planned, but I know by my spirit it's really, really good. Right? We just know it, right? We know in our knower, right? And so he goes on, he goes, well, we'll tell you these things, in verse 13, we do not use words that come from human wisdom, intellect, instead we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain these spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual, they can't receive these truths from God's Spirit, It all sounds foolish to them. They can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. And those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts, but who knows enough to teach Him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. Now, that is huge. Let me go on to chapter 3, verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you about what I wanted to as spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to the world and as though you're infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you're not ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready, for you're still controlled by your sinful nature. You're jealous and you quarrel with each other. Doesn't it prove you're still controlled by your sinful nature? So he goes on, he sets them up, he says, he, actually, if you look at the Greek there, there are three words that are defining three different categories of people. He uses the natural man, the psuchikos, the spirit man, the pneumatikos, and the carnal man, the sarkikos. You say, that's wild. But it says, in fact, then it goes on, it says, those that are the carnal are fleshly driven. They are driven by the flesh passions. They behave and they follow fleshly patterns. That's the carnal man or woman. The natural man is driven by intellect and emotions. It's the head knowledge control person. Doesn't make sense to me and that's not the way. That's the natural man. 
And by the way, both of them are spiritually dead. They are unregenerated. And then there's the spirit man who is led by the spirit. Paul talks about in Romans 8, being led by the spirit. I think it's 31 times in King James, he uses the word spirit or Holy Spirit in that scripture of chapter 8, Romans. Being led by the spirit, being a spiritual person led by the spirit. So we see that in Thessalonians, you don't just jot this down, don't go there now, but in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, may the God of peace make you holy in spirit, soul, and body. We are tripart beings. Now you might say, well, I get born again, and why do I still kind of get torn this way or that way by fleshly motives? Because we need to be baptized in the power of the Holy Ghost to overcome those things. So there's a transition in that process. The moment you get saved, I'd love to say that we're, you know, all of a sudden, wow, we're just like following we're holy all the time. Again, if that's you, come pray for me. All right, let's pick up. So we see here there is a spiritual order of things that Jesus was telling or expressing to the disciples, there is a season spiritually that you need to be fruitful all the time. He tells Timothy, he says, be ready in season or out of season. Once you become born again, there are no more spiritual seasons. No sundown, taking the day off. No fruit today, I'm done. Just going to be leafy today. No, not allowed. What he's saying spiritually, so he tells the disciples, and he does it so dramatically. You know, Peter, Peter had to have a lot of drama. He's like me, just like, bang, the side of the head, right? I'll fight for you. I'm going to do it all. I'll die for you. Pulls out the sword, cuts off the ear. Jesus said, put up the sword. But you, earlier he said, how many swords do we have? Two. Well, that'll be enough. Terry and I, Pastor Terry and I have argued, why did they have swords if they weren't going to fight? Why did he tell them to bring them? Why did he cut off the ear? I don't know. But here's a thought. When he turned, Peter, put up your sword. You'll die by the sword if you use it. And then he reached over and he joined the ear. Well, you know that servant for the rest of his life said, this Messiah, he must be real. He's got to be real. He's got, a, he's got an agenda within every agenda. And it may have been just for that character. I don't know. But we do know this. In the, the context of this, Jesus says there's no more spiritual season. And Peter hears it. And he goes, then he comes the next day. And you know they walk by that place on purpose. Did Jesus know in advance that there weren't going to be? I, I don't know. He knows everything. But there it is. Peter goes, Hold, whoa, what's up with that? Jesus said, teaching moment. And then he goes on and pull out your outline. And he says this. He goes, the master does expect fruit. I'm going to look at that. Master expects fruit outside the natural season. So when the teacher picks on the tree, he's teaching. But then he says, you better be ready. 2 Timothy 4.2, in every season. Now, if you hang around here at any length of time, you will get corrected about using negativity words, right? You just hang here a little bit. Oh, really? Is that what God says? In fact, I had an opportunity to challenge one of my brothers the other day. He Thursday came in and said, I'm having this. And he said, and I said, is it really? He goes, ah, there it goes again. I can hear Miss Nancy right in the midst of it all, right? 
You better have positive words. No, no, no. You're not going to get away with that. It's so powerful. Why? We're going to see why. And, you know, when we get, when we get hammered, I love what Mark was sharing this morning about when we're surrounded by all sorts of stuff, he's got us surrounded. And they got to look at Christ through everything. If we could just keep that in the forefront, it's so good. He fights the battles. But here it says, there is in fact the power of the spoken word. Number two there, I've listed the power of curses and the power of spoken words. I've done literally probably over a thousand prayer ministries with individuals, and I've done 4,000 people at one time in Tanzania. Curses are extremely powerful, and when a child or a spouse or a friend or a family member, when a curse is levied at someone, you're never going to amount to anything. You're never going to be any good. You're ugly. You've depressed me. I wish, I, never, I wish you were never born. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that as a pattern. Frustration that comes out of someone in the midst of it. And then people, even parents who use wrong methods with a good motive, Take him up on the top of, I remember I was doing a prayer ministry on someone who's in heaven right now. Father took him up, looked over these million-dollar homes in California and told his son. son said, wow, Dad, look at those homes. I want to have one of those someday. He says, you'll never have a home like that because you're lazy and you'll never amount to anything. The father, he, we broke that curse. The father was trying to motivate. Son, don't be lazy. You want some? But, man, the method just terrible. Maybe a good motive, but a terrible method. And every one of us has been in those situations, the power of the spoken word. That's why it's best to just be quiet when you're feeling like, <sighs> James says, if you can control that tongue, you're a man or woman who is not carnal. You're under the control of the Holy Spirit, James 3, right? The power of those words, the power of curses. He goes on and says, there's life and death in your tongue, and you will have what you say. And I listed just, you go on and look, you can look at tons of them, Proverbs, Peter, Mark, Matthew, James. Well, what do we learn from the lesson of the fig tree? One, we've been given dominion. You want a scripture there? We've been given dominion over the earth. In Genesis 1, 26, 9, 2, Psalms 8, 6, you and I have been given, we can hurt the earth or we can bless the earth. You've been given dominion. Jesus had the authority because he can walk on water, he can do supernatural, but he tells us, you've been given. He gave us delegated a power over what looks to be impossible, like moving mountains. Has anybody ever seen a mountain move when somebody spoke to it? I, I don't even know a scripture. Jesus uses this most outlandish example. And, it's, you know, he, he commanded storms. He commanded, he, I mean, he, he created things out of, he was sovereign, he did those, but I, never, I, know, I know of no case that he's moved, this, this mountain needs to go away here. Now, we do know that Moses, the Red Sea opened up and mountains of water and, you know, moved to the sides and Egyptians died, but we know now that there is power delegated to things that look impossible. And I wondered about that. I said, so God would, when do you operate like that? When? And I believe it's any time there's a situation that blocks the love of God or the revelation of Christ. He's just looking for a mouthpiece that will, like Moses, when the Egyptians are coming and that whole situation there. The situation of moving mountains. And so we see this delegated impossibility. 
But I want us to take apart. Are you there? Let's go back to, to Matthew. I'm sorry, Mark 11. Let's go back there and let's look. I have actually, in my Bible, I have, you know, it's like underlined, highlighted, circled, and then, you know, I just, man. Because I think there's principles here that they're not formulas, but they certainly are, they set up the environment that sets God to move. Bishop last week in his sermon, what a great sermon that was, amen? But it was on faith, right? Don't buy the picture. And he used the example, there were several, the woman with the issue of blood. There was a setup conditionally. And we've been going through John's, the eight miraculous ones in Gospel of John, that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you'll live. And John uses eight amazing miracles to define that. Well, we see here in this situation, he teaches, Jesus teaches us, these are conditions that if you want to move a mountain out of your way, it's important that these things are in alignment if you want to get the mountain mover's attention. So we ought to pay attention to that. He uses the, the fig tree, oh, wow. He says, and then he does this amazing teaching to the disciples. Well, let's look at them. I've listed them here. Verse 22, have faith in God. Speak to the obstacle that you want to have moved. Really believe. Now, some of these are like, ugh. Not sort of believe. Not believe that the word, it's no, it's, it's a heart deal. It's not a head deal. Well, I know God can heal. And if he wants to find me, he knows where I live. Nah, that's not that going to work. It's, it's, it's a heart. It's not, it's because the intellectual is a natural man or woman. They know in their knower head that this is what he can do. I've read it. But it is not relevant by the spirit man that can see it happen and believe it before. And he's taken us there as a congregation, I believe. So he said, you need to believe it, and you need to pray. Now, oh, wait, pray. Because he goes on, he says, and you can pray for anything, but when you pray, here's a condition within the condition. One, you ought to pray. I heard a Barner statistic that spirit-filled believers only pray less than four minutes per day. Golly, whoa, what in the world? Help us, Jesus. We don't talk to the source of all power more than four minutes a day in real, real inter intercession with, with our Father? Help us, Lord. Convict us there. Pray, but when you pray, here's a condition within a condition. Pray, but when you pray, believe before you receive it. Verse 24. Another condition. E, 2E says, when you pray, take inventory. Is there any unforgiveness, any grudges, any offenses? Because the wrong words, doubt and unforgiveness, lack of prayer, they are blockers to the bulldozer that's going to move the mountain, or they're going to make the mountain bigger. As you start complaining, cranking, going after, guess what? The mountain's just getting bigger and taller. See, our faith is in the mountain mover, and all we are really is the mouthpiece. 
By heaven's inventory, forgiveness of sin is in our desired place. So this, I've listed there at the bottom of the page, there's two scriptures. One, anything is possible if a person believes. That's out of Mark chapter 9. That's the example given when Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration with the three apostles, and the nine are at the bottom of the mountain, and there's a father who's got a young child, son, who's demonized, and he is severely demonized. It's tried to kill him, throw him in the fire, tries to drown him when they get near water. This, this kid is tormented, and the disciples were asked by the father, would you please set my son free? They can't do it. And Jesus comes off the mount with the three, and he says, "What's all?" And here's all this commotion going on. He walks over to the crowd where the boy is, and as soon as he gets there, the boy manifests, hits the ground, foams at the mouth, and is doing all these things that we've seen when a person's tormented. And if Jesus, not moved by that, turns to the father and says, so uh, how long has this been going on? Oh, since he's been a child, it tries to kill him, drown him, choke him, burn him. He goes, and by the way, I, I, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't help me. Could you please help me if you can? Well, that just sent Jesus off the charts. First, he addresses the boys, the nine, actually all 12 of them, who had been given power and authority over demons and sickness the chapter before. It's kind of like, I've already brought you through this. I've given you the expectation and I'm expecting you to operate in what I've given you. But they don't believe it. And so he turns to them. He says to the boys, you're a faithless and perverse generation. How long do I have to even put up with you? Now, I don't know if you, but you're with the rabbi, the teacher. You've already sold your possessions, and you're with him, and you're, like, trying to please him. And Peter and James and John go off the mountain. We saw Elijah and Moses. Oh, my gosh. And now you're, like, faithless and perverted. That's not an encouraging word. But Jesus was so disappointed in the fact that I have given you the impartation of faith and you're not operating in it. And so I have a right to, to rebuke you to let you know. And then he, said, then he turns to the Father and says, anything is possible to those who believe. Bring the boy to me. And of course, we don't, it's not traumatic. Something, all of a sudden the boy's delivered. So back, can you imagine they all go back and says, oh my goodness, he set them free. We're there. We went up on the mountain. I'm sure Peter and James and John are like, what did we see up there? And he told them not to say anything. And then he told them, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be taken. They're going to put me on a cross. They're, they've got all this going on in their heads. They see the deliverance. They get back at the house. And they said, Jesus, why, why, why couldn't we do that? He says, this kind. This is a high-level darkness. This kind goes out by prayer and fasting. Two of the Gospels say, to say prayer. This, this power of prayer, this revelation of faith, that's all wrapped together. There's this place where he has an expectation that your fruit tree and mine better be ready and pull, full of fruit at any moment, full of faith, full of power, delegated by him. He has an expectation because there are demonized, broken people all around us who are sick and dying, and you carry and I carry the fruit tree that brings that life. And he gets disappointed when we don't operate in the fruit. There's no days off in the kingdom. 
Hello? She's going to kick back. There's no days off. That means at the work site. That means at the grocery store. That means at the family gathering. Oh, but Pastor, you don't know if I open my mouth, the family's going If you love your family and your mother and father more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. These are scriptural, like, oh, Lord, help us. Again, I'm not trying to bring condemnation, but there is a truth that cuts right through this. There is an expectation that the fruit tree better be ripe. He paid a huge price for that. So this is not a formula, but it is certainly conditional. I want us, I felt like the altar call this morning. Really, we needed to take some time. So I'm going to ask if the, if the worship team would come up. And if you would quietly play that song about the blood. I felt this morning, I wanted to leave room at the end here. I believe that we really need to deal with unforgiveness and grudges. Bitterness, resentments. Now, I know there's layers to this, and some of them are the hardest to get over. If you've had a child murdered, or you've had a child molested, or you've been raped or abused, or you've been abandoned, you have legitimate hurt and wounds. But there is no scriptural reference that says you get a pass on unforgiveness. In fact, that scripture we read in in Mark verse 26 says, if you don't forgive, the Father will not forgive you. Now, you can justify your bitterness. You can justify your compromise and resentment. But it won't work when you stand before him. If Jesus, in the midst of all of that hurt and woundedness on the cross, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He modeled for us. So I want everybody to just close your eyes for a moment. Let's just do some Holy Spirit time. He says... If we'll judge ourselves in this arena, He won't judge us. I'd like you to find maybe the most deepest wound or the circumstance situation that I wish I, this is like the worst thing I think I've ever done in my life. Or the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And I want you to see that Jesus is all around you. He's above you and He's below you. And there is no hurt and there is no wound that He doesn't give you the grace to do what He asked you to do in the Scripture. I'd like you to find the person that if they were to walk in this room, they may not be with us anymore, may not be on this earth, but the wound of that is still prevalent. There's layers. There's onion layers to this. If that person were to walk in this room right now and sit down next to you and you have any form of pulling back or repulsiveness, then you are not done. I'm not done. And the Lord wants you to give that to Him. There may be multiples. There may be more than one. 
I'd like you to verbalize, I choose to forgive them. I may not want to. I don't have the emotion to. Remember, we're not intellectual soul men and women. We are spirit men and women. And we operate by the Spirit of God. And I choose by the Spirit to forgive them, to release them. 